We come now to our sermon text this morning, which today is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. Hear now the word of God to you. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This concludes our reading this morning. Let us now ask the Lord's blessing in a brief word of prayer. Lord, we come again now with a new focus, particularly asking you to grant us understanding of your word. This is a rich text. In some ways it's a difficult text. We pray that you would help us to make sense of it and particularly do the difficult work of applying it in our lives as we strive to follow you, as you have asked us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to get in your car, spend some time driving around, well, it doesn't really matter where, here, elsewhere, with the sole purpose of cataloging the various churches you passed, you probably would not walk away with the impression that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is unified. Just in Athens here, you would find yourself driving past signs for the Catholic church over down the street, for churches of various Protestant denominations, and for churches unwilling to claim any allegiance or affiliation at all. In fact, if you drove around the block right here, you would even find blatantly non-Christian assemblies calling themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's churches everywhere of all stripes. And since this is the case, outsiders could be forgiven for thinking that Christians are hopelessly divided, the truth cannot be known, and choosing a church is mostly about picking one's preference. We not bristle against those notions, but I don't think we should be too harsh on those who hold them, because Christians have given them plenty of ammunition to work with over the years. Sometimes our division is more apparent than our unity. But the problem is worse than that still yet because those notions are not just held by outsiders. Uh, those, those evident signs of division uh, in the church can and have negatively affected genuine believers as well. Leading them towards one of two errors. On the one hand, some seeing the situation in which we live will err on the side of charity concluding that none of our divisions really matter. Anyone who claims the name of Jesus, is, they're free to believe whatever they want. 
They're free to worship wherever they want. As long as you love the Lord, nothing else matters. On the other hand, some will err on the side of caution, concluding that only those with pristine theology and perfect practices are in, which implies that anybody who doesn't attend my church is a dirty, rotten, no-good, hell-bound sinner. Uh, If you don't love the Lord like I do, then you don't love Him at all. You're out. But the problem is that both of those approaches are errors. They're both errors. And they are both reactions to the unfortunate but real divisions which exist within the church in our modern society. So if neither of those reactions reflect the path of wisdom and righteousness, well then, then what are we to do? Well, reflecting on passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 6, I think at the most basic level we can say that we must continually strive to hold fast to two truths. First, we are called to maintain real unity with other Christian believers in the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care if you don't like that. It's true. Okay? Have to hold it. Second, our unity has a real objective basis, which implies that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a place where anything goes. The fact of the matter is that some are in and some are out. Both of those truths are vital. We may dispense with neither of them, but admittedly, it can be exceedingly difficult to navigate the application of those truths in our fragmented ecclesiastical landscape. But faithfulness to the Scriptures simply will not allow us to just throw our hands up and give ourselves over to one of the two errors which we have already mentioned. We must hold that there is real unity in the church and that it has a real objective basis. And so, with those things in mind, let us now turn our attention to our sermon text, where we learn that God calls us to maintain the unity which He has established in the church. God calls us to maintain the unity which He has established in the church. And as we work to learn this lesson, we're going to break our passage down into two sections. First of all, The call to maintain Christian unity in verses 1 to 3. And then the basis for Christian unity in verses 4 to 6. So the call to maintain Christian unity in verses 1 to 3. And the basis for Christian unity in verses 4 to 6. First of all, the call to maintain Christian unity. As we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, we arrive at an important transition point in the book. It, It marks Paul's movement away from doctrinal instruction and towards ethical exhortation. And these are not hermetically sealed categories. You'll find a little bit of both in both sections. The doctrines in chapters 1 to 3, they have practical implications. The exhortations in chapters 4 to 6, they have theological underpinnings. But I think if you sit down and you read the whole book in one sitting, there's an apparent and obvious division which takes place right here. And Paul signals this transition with the opening exhortation of verse 1. Here's what he says. 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. When Paul says, I therefore, he is signaling to us and to all readers that what follows is premised, it's premised on what has come before. Because the doctrinal instruction is true, the ethical exhortations naturally and organically follow. And before he tells us what those exhortations entail, he reminds us once more that he issues these commands as a prisoner for or in the Lord. While in the eyes of the world, Paul's status as a prisoner might detract from his ability to issue authoritative instruction, he views it quite differently in this letter, does he not? According to Paul, he was a captive, his captivity was a captivity in the Lord. And as one united to Christ, his suffering was ordained by Christ and it was carried out for Christ. That's why back in chapter 3, verse 13, he was able to conceive of his suffering as a source of glory rather than shame. So, ironically, when Paul announces himself as a prisoner in the Lord, he is highlighting his unique role as a suffering servant ambassador of Christ to the church. It's in this office that he issues the exhortations which follow in the book. John Cowan, I think, poignantly describes this irony in Paul's perspective when he says this, the, the apostle's prison is more truly venerable than the splendid retinue or triumphal chariot of kings. For, for Paul, his chains were of more worth than a king's crown. And therefore, building on all that has been said in the first three chapters, as the prisoner in the Lord par excellence, Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And upon close inspection, it's, it's not difficult to see why Paul views such an exhortation as the overflow of his teaching, which he has done up to this point. In short, he is calling his readers to live in a way that reflects the fruit of God's gospel power working in their lives. Yes, he has powerfully proclaimed the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, proclaiming the merciful mystery of Gentile inclusion and salvation among the saints along the way. But he has also been clear that we are saved by grace unto works. Because free grace provides real fuel for holy living. Here's how he phrased it back in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's gospel grace. There's salvation. But he goes on, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so when Paul begins to urge the Ephesians and us with them to walk in a particular manner, he is just elaborating on a principle which he's already laid down. New life yields a new way of life. 
That's, that's why there's a chapter 4 in this book. And to get more specific, he wants believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And the language of calling was introduced back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul prayed that the saints would know what is the hope to which God has called them. To use the language of calling in this context is, is shorthand for the way in which God took the gracious initiative to call the spiritually dead back to life through Christ. With all that entails for the past, the present, and the future. Because that is the nature of our call, therefore the Christian is to conduct himself in a manner which harmonizes with all that he believes. And to get down to brass tacks, what does that look like? Well, we're not left in mystery. Paul tells us that Christians are to conduct themselves with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, much has been made up to this point about the way in which Jews and Gentiles in Christ are incorporated into a single entity. And on paper, that sounds like a, a sweet and harmonious arrangement, but we know from experience that just because you can get a bunch of people in a room together doesn't mean that everything's going to go well. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to get along. And so these exhortations are meant to foster the unity to which we have been called in Christ. We, we might put it this way. Paul wants us to take the objective reality of our of our unity and subjectively live it out. Make it happen. Bring it into our lived experience. Practically speaking, how do we do that? Well, verses 2 and 3 provide us with five characteristics which we are to cultivate if we are going to pull unity off. He tells us here that the Christian walk, walking worthy, is characterized, first of all, by humility. Humility. Humility involves having a low estimate of one's own importance. Uh, Paul tells us that it is a considering others more significant than yourself. Well, we might say it's a, it's a certain lowliness of mind uh, which is willing to be unseen rather than exalted. And the fact of the matter is that humility of this sort was deemed a vice rather than a virtue in the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was considered quite appropriate to actively seek out honor. And so humility was seen as a sign of, of weakness. There was something wrong with you. But within the teaching of the Bible, it's just that sort of thing which we are to live out, to have a low sense of our own importance given the grand scheme of God's work in the world and in those around us. First of all, humility. Second of all, those who are walking worthy will possess gentleness. Uh, this characteristic connoted a, 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 a sense of self-control in one's interactions with others. It's a, it's a maintaining a, a temperate demeanor. It's showing courtesy to those around you. Sometimes, depending on your Bible translation, this word will be 
rendered meekness. And that's a fine translation so long as you understand that meekness isn't weakness. Instead, what is in view is a deliberate choice to be gentle with others as Christ has been gentle with us. He is the one who is gentle and lonely. He bids us to come unto Him. And so we are to mirror His uh, characteristics and character in that way. So humility, gentleness, third, patience. Uh, the Greek word used here is, is a compound word which combines the ideas of anger and, and long periods of time. That's why the, the King James uh, renders it as uh, that, that uh, well-known word, long-suffering. Suffering, willing to suffer over long periods of time. The idea, in either word, patience or long-suffering, is the idea that one is, is slow to anger, unwilling to lash out at the first sign of friction. Unwilling to beat others down at the first, uh, the first scent of tension. So humility, gentleness, patience. Also, those who are walking worthy must be bearing with one another in love. We could put this differently by saying that as a Christian, you must be willing to put up with others. Sometimes, sometimes things are great and we love being around each other, but sometimes we just have to put up with each other. But we do it even when we don't want to because we have a, a, a self-sacrificial sense of love for each other because Christ showed us self-sacrificial love. This is, this is a willingness to uh, endure annoyingness uh, and reproach for the sake of Christ. Bearing with one another in love through thick and thin. And finally, he says that those who are to walk worthily, will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A couple things we notice there. First of all, it's, we don't manufacture the unity of the church as Christians. Uh, it, it's the unity of the Spirit, meaning it's a Spirit-produced, Spirit-wrought unity. But we are to exert ourselves in an attempt to maintain it or keep it up. So, so the Holy Spirit produces the unity, binding us together so that we might live at peace with one another. That peace is the bond which holds us together. But to live as faithful Christians, we must be eager to maintain that unity and to uphold that bond. So those are the five things. Walking worthily entails humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And when we take all of that in, what do we learn about maintaining Christian unity in the church? Well, we learn that those most apt to promote unity in the church are those who are most like Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the whole point of Philippians 2, is it not? That though He was God incarnate, Christ was humble willing to sacrifice his own self-interest and his own life for those who were unworthy, unlovely, and undeserving. That's what Jesus was like. So, so if you have believed in the gospel, if you have believed that Jesus laid down his life on the cross so that you might be forgiven, if you have believed that you have been granted new resurrection life through the power of his resurrection, and you do believe that, then live like it. Live like it. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Be like Jesus. 
with His power inside you, by working to cultivate the sort of life which builds up rather than tears down the church. Are you here this morning and you're haughty, prideful, arrogant, annoyed, self-serving? If you're any of those things, then, then you are potentially on your way to being a church killer. That's the warning of this text. You are on your way to being a church killer. Left unchecked, those who possess those attributes rather than the ones described in our text will sow division rather than unity. And Paul has some, uh, some hard words elsewhere in his writings for those who sow division rather than unity. So if you sense those things within you, and we all have seeds of them within us. We all have to battle against them. But if you sense those things within you, then you need to put them behind you in the power of the Spirit. Lest you leave destruction in your wake. That is the warning of this passage. Heed Paul's exhortation to be this sort of person so that you might contribute to the maintenance of the Spirit's unity which he has worked in our midst. So Paul tells us that's what it takes to maintain Christian unity in the church. But then we ask, why does it matter? Why is that a goal towards which we should strive? And that's a question which Paul turns to in verses 4 to 6 as, as he outlines for us now the basis of Christian unity. The basis of Christian unity. All that he's about to say, we might briefly summarize by saying that the very nature of our faith pushes us towards oneness and unity in the church. Everything we believe pushes us in that direction. But Paul doesn't leave it in general terms. Instead he lists seven things which bind us together as Christian believers. First of all, he says, verse 4, there is one body. Now this is probably the element which is the easiest to understand in principle, and yet I believe that it is also the one which is most difficult to understand in practice. So we're going to take a lot more time on this one than on the rest of them. The rest of them will follow from this. When Paul says that there is one body, he means that there is one church, which is the body of Christ. So though there are many churches in various locations, that's true in Ephesus, it's true here, there is something behind all of the various gatherings which binds them together. But that raises the question, what is it that binds all believers together into one body. And we must face the, the undeniable fact that this is a question which has been answered in different ways throughout church history. When you look out over the landscape of all those who call themselves Christians, the fact of the matter is that most people believe the oneness and unity of the church is an organizational we might say, an institutional reality. Whether you're talking about the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, the Assyrian Church of the East, did you even know that one existed? Uh, all of those bodies will tell you that one body means one church, which means one institution. So according to those 
who are living in these various traditions, the one body just is their church to the exclusion of all others. However, I hope it's obvious to you that Protestants have not historically equated the oneness of the body with a singular institution. Uh, we would immediately have to figure out which one it was if, if that were the case. And, and, but if that's not what they've done, what have they done? Well, instead, the church's unity has been viewed by Protestants and particularly by Reformed Christians as an organic spiritual reality which transcends institutional barriers. An organic spiritual reality which transcends Spiritual, which transcends institutional bearers. <clears throat> the Westminster Confession of Faith is helpful here because the Westminster Confession of Faith describes two different ways to get at this universal unity or little c, Catholicity. First of all, the Confession helpfully explains to us how it is that the church is united invisibly, the church is united invisibly as the total collection of the elect. All true believers through all times bound together in one spiritual body. Here's what Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 1 says. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Okay, so there's an invisible, there's an invisible aspect of the church wherein it is one. It is that singular collection of all the elect bound and united to Christ. Secondly, the church is united visibly by its profession of the true faith across time and space. Okay, here's what we read in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 2. The visible church, which is, this is important, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So as Reformed Christians, we believe that the church can be considered in an invisible sense of, of all the elect bound together in Christ, but it can also be considered universal in the sense that it includes all of those who outwardly profess the true religion, along with their children. There's our covenant theology. All bound together in the family and household of God in His kingdom. So as, as Reformed Christians, we confess, just like all of those other traditions, that there is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. But what we mean by that is that considered as, a, as an invisible spiritual body, it is the election and salvation of the members which holds everything together. So if you are truly saved, you are part of the one body. It, 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 God is omniscient, He knows all things, and so He alone, at this point in history, knows every member of that body. But He knows it. It's a countable group. It's an identifiable group in the eyes of God. And secondly, 
considered as a visible body here in this world, it is the common profession of the true faith which holds everything together. Whether you're worshiping here in this church or somewhere else. If you profess the true faith, then you are a member. Uh, if, if your church professes that true faith, you're a member of the visible body of Christ. This is why we can continue to affirm the oneness of the body while also recognizing the existence of several denominations. The question is not, are we all part of the same organization? Rather, the question is, have we all been united to Christ by profession of the one true faith? Are we worshiping with the people of God? Now we know in the nitty-gritty uh, dirtiness of this world, some denominations hold to that one true faith more faithfully than others. Some make the invisible spiritual, spiritual spirit, excuse me. Some make the invisible spiritual reality more clearly visible. The confession says that, and that's why your local membership in a particular congregation matters. That's why we can't just throw up our hands and succumb to a free for all. Where we attend weekly does matter. Because faithfulness matters. The glory of God matters. We want to be as pure a, a, a local congregation and body of the church as we can. But, as we come back to the oneness and the unity, if we ever begin to think that we are the only game in town, then we, ironically, run the risk of severing ourselves from the body. God help us if this is the only true church in Athens. That's just not true. God help us if we believe that. So don't believe that. Okay? I want you to be here. I think there's good reasons to be here. I think some other people should be here. But, but we are bound together with those even in less faithful churches by the Spirit who unites us together. So, I know we kind of went, we went on an excursus there, but I think it's an important one. But now we come back and say, because there is one body, we are to strive to maintain Christian unity, knowing that those who profess the true faith, and those churches which profess the true faith, are truly unified in their confession. The second thing undergirding our unity in the church, Paul tells us, is the fact that there is one spirit. The one who binds the body together, as we've already said, is the one spirit who produces our unity and draws us together as he works within our hearts. If there is a spirit at work in you, other than the Holy Spirit, then you probably are not a member of that one body which the Holy Spirit has knit together. But if you do have the Holy Spirit, then you do have the ability to strive for peace within the church because you have the one who created the unity to begin with working in you. So there is one body. And in that one body there is one spirit. And we're also told in the third place that there is one hope. Uh, one of the ways that we know that there is one body and one spirit, which actually supports the Protestant position on this matter, is that you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's what he says. So, so we are bound together in part by the fact that we have all been called to one hope in Jesus Christ. And that implies that it is the hope-producing object of our faith, rather than the institution which we join, which 
unites us to Christ. I'm not saying it doesn't matter if you don't join the church. That does matter. But I'm talking about there's one institution. That's not the point. It's the point that we join the church that has given itself to that one call, that one hope in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Him that we have the hope of forgiveness now and eternal life hereafter. One body, one spirit, one hope. Fourth place, one Lord. When Paul talks about the Lord, he is speaking about Jesus Christ. That's the language which he uses to distinguish the Son from the Father, who he typically refers to as God. So Jesus, as the Lord, saves us by His grace, and then as we seek to follow Him, we follow Him as disciples over whom He acts as Lord. And so one of the foundations of Christian unity is the fact that we all share the same Master. We are all marching to the beat of the same drum. We are subjects of the same King. We have one Lord. Fifth, there's one faith. Typically when we use the word faith, we're referring to our subjective act of faith. Like we have faith in this. But here, it's being used in a more objective sense. Paul is referring to the Christian faith. A recognizable entity. A system of belief and practice. To put it very simply, we have a common religion with common doctrines. No doubt, we have disagreements on a whole host of secondary theological issues. That's why we are not meeting with the Methodists today or the Baptists today or whoever, fill in the blank. But bona fide Christians agree about who God is, what Jesus did, and where salvation is to be found. At our best, we agree on those things. We confess the same faith that is bound up in uh, the creeds. We, we believe in a creedal Christianity. And so these things make up the one faith which we confess and which holds us together even amid uh, those secondary disagreements. Sixth, we come to the fact that there is one baptism. As a sacrament, baptism is one of the most visible indicators of the church's unity. This is the pathway into the church as one is tangibly marked out as belonging to the triune God. So as many as have been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit have common ground on which to stand in the church. We participate in the same spiritual reality of the body of Christ, the visible church of the Lord here on earth. And finally, seventh, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. At the core of our unity stands the Father. Um, if you pay close attention, you may notice that Paul works backwards, at least as we conceive of it. You know, you think of our creeds that we confess together, and we confess the Father, we confess the Son, we confess the Spirit, we confess that we're in the church together. But Paul works exactly backwards here in the text of how we think of it. He starts with the church, then the Spirit, then the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he comes to the Father, to whom all believers belong as children. He is over us in authority. He works through us and in our midst. And He dwells in us by virtue of the Spirit's presence. So, so when taken with the rest of the 
the unifying factors listed here in Ephesians chapter 4, we find that the one God who exists in three persons to redeem and preserve for Himself a people forms the basis for the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who binds us together in ways that in this lifetime are not totally visible. They're distorted by our disagreements. It's distorted by our divisions. But it is a true spiritual reality that God binds together His church. So, so brothers and sisters, the overarching point here is that we have been given all the resources we need in order to maintain unity in the church. Insofar as we are divided, what is that? It is an evidence of our sin and our failures to maintain the unity which is constant with our faith. There are good reasons that the denominations exist. But I just can't get away from the thought that in, in some sense they're all evidence of our sin and failure in this life. That doesn't mean scrap them. Uh, we, we live in the world that we live in. Uh, but uh, when we disagree, when people are in error, that's not a good thing. Can you agree with that? Uh, so we must continue to work towards cultivate the unity of the Spirit, which the Spirit produces at various levels within the church. First of all, we can think of this on a congregational level. Unity within this body. Exhibiting in our interactions with one another. Humility, gentleness, patience, willingness to bear with one another. Those, that, this is where the rubber really meets the road on those sorts of things. As we come shoulder to shoulder together with each other each and every week. And Lord willing, as this church begins to grow, and as different sorts of people come in, uh, this is something that we will continually have to strive to, to exhibit with one another as we learn how to exist with one body. At a secondary level, we can think of unity within our particular church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We, we should be willing and happy to joyfully cooperate together in worship and in the work of the church through those things that we pray for each week. Foreign missions, home missions, Christian education. The fact that Nick and I are swapping pulpits today is a, is a very small picture of the oneness which we have as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's, it's a sign of our unity and cooperation together. So when Nick comes tonight, I hope that you will exhibit humility and gentleness and patience and a willingness to bear with him as well. I hope they'll do the same in Chattanooga because that is a sign of the church's oneness. And on a third level, and this is the, no doubt the most difficult one, unity in the broader body of Christ encompassing not just our Orthodox Presbyterian Church but other Reformed and non-Reformed denominations. We are called in different degrees and in different ways. And I, we just can't work through the list of denominations to say and how we should relate to each one. We can't do that. But in different levels and degrees, we are called to accept as brothers and sisters those who participate in the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God by faith. Even if we have profound disagreements, those who genuinely possess these things are our brothers and sisters, and there are ways in which we can cooperate with them even if, even if, and this is the important thing, even if, our striving for faithfulness means that we cannot at this point join with them institutionally. Denominations, again, continue to play a legitimate role in our fallen world. But our prayer should be that all denominations would not remain as they are, but would continue to press towards the truth. They would continue to press towards greater faithfulness. It should never be our goal to just say, 
you know, what will be will be. Uh, and so all these denominations, they're just going to crumble and splinter. And, and no, we should be praying that the Lord would guide His whole church, the whole visible church, professing the true faith towards greater faithfulness, towards greater knowledge of the truth, so that we can exhibit more and more unity with one another in ways appropriate to our spiritual unity in Christ. Again, that's hard. With each and every church, with each and every denomination, with each and every tradition, how that works itself out is a difficult question. And it's a matter of applying the principles which we have gone over here. And we really need the Spirit to work in us to know how to do that right, to know how to do it well. But I think there's just no way around it. I think there's no way around it when we read passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, that we're called to that responsibility. So, in conclusion, I hope it's clear that Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 teaches us that God calls us to maintain the unity which He has established in the church. It is an exhortation for which He has supplied plenteous resources that we might obey. So let it stand as a challenge for us. I know it does not seem like we are anywhere close to being unified, even in this community, as Christian believers. But let us pray that the, church, that the, that the Lord would work in His church, that He would stir up some sort of, of work in our day that transcends even our foggiest imaginations that He might bring the one church, which is one invisibly, into a more visible unity, professing the true faith. So when, when the world criticizes the apparent division of the church, let us join them in lamenting those unnecessary divisions which have caused such fractures. But also, let, let's not totally cede the point, let us also bear witness to the spiritual unity, the real spiritual unity, which we still possess, even in our different congregations, in our different denominations, as those united to Christ by the Spirit, professing the true faith of the gospel, as it's been outlined in Ephesians 1-3. to And let us ever be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of truth. Hard work. Got to do it. Let's pray.